May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy scripture. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, starting in the middle of the 13th verse. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God uh, be on you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Good morning, everybody. I'm back. Boron was wonderful. It was a sweet little church, just really nice folks. Um, they feel very familiar, kind of like us, but just further that way, so further north. Um, and they want, wanted me to say hi. So hi, y'all. Um, let's open in a word of prayer before we turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, we sang a song about you being the perfecter, or the, the founder and the perfecter of our faith the one who grants us faith, who creates our faith, and then brings it to its completion. And Lord, in one sense, that means it's the perfecter as in when we're raised with you and we see you as you are and our hope and our faith becomes sight because we're with you. And Lord, that means you have completed everything that you've promised us. But I think also, Lord, in context, it also has a sense of honing us and shaping us, a finisher, like somebody who would, who would finish furniture or finish uh, um, um, a remodel of a house or something, putting those little details on. And Lord, you're the founder. You're, you're the one who gives us our faith. You're the one we have faith in. And you work in us to complete the faith in us, to make it what it should be, to, to hone it into the picture of what it should be. And Lord, as we sang in the song, we even mentioned about suffering. Um, we talked about your suffering, but Lord, I think you can also use suffering in our life to, to hone us and to shape us in that way. 
And uh, Lord, I'm grateful that that means our suffering is not pointless. It's not accidental. It's not from an indifferent cosmos. Lord, it is from the hand of a loving father. And thank you for that. So Lord, to that end, I want to pray for Harlan West and his family. They had two back-to-back deaths in the family from different sides, an aunt and an uncle, one who knows you and one who doesn't. And Lord, the, the pain that death brings, especially back-to-back like that, can be really difficult. So I know for Harlan and for uh, part of his family who, who trust you, Lord, they're going to grieve, but not without hope. Um, they, they have the hope that, Lord, the grief that they experience is because of who you are and because you'll take care of them and, and they know that you're in your hand, they're in your hands even if they're suffering. And Lord, for the family who doesn't know you, the part of the family who doesn't trust you, Lord, I pray that those believers would be just an example of what grief with hope could look like. Lord, that you'd be working in their lives, that you'd be the founder and the perfecter of their faith in the midst of that kind of suffering as well. And so just have, uh, up, have wonderful mercy on that family as they go through the, the trials and, and the difficulties of losing two people uh, so close to each other. And Lord, I especially pray for my brother Harlan that you would be a comfort and a, and a strength to him. Lord, that we as a church would surround him and support him with love and care, and that uh, we would walk with him as he's uh, going through the, the loss of family members like this. So have mercy. Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word? We want to hear from you. We want to know what you're saying. Lord, we want to be um, have our faith perfected, shaped, and, and completed, and, and brought together. And Lord, your word is the primary means that you use to do that in our lives. And so would you do that now, we pray. Uh, be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, there's a uh, article from uh, 2017 in Inc. Magazine. That's a business magazine. And it tells a story about a professional speaker, a pub- professional public speaker named Greg Gregory. Of course, with a name like that, you've got to be a public speaker, right? Greg Gregory. And he tells a story about boarding a Southwest flight out of Orlando. And uh, so as he's in line, you know, when you do Southwest, you, it's a cattle call, you get in line and you just, you know, go in. And he noticed up ahead of him uh, a guy with a rather large Mickey Mouse hat on. You know, and that kind of thing is going to stand out. And of course, if they're in Orlando, you know, there's, you know, going to be Mickey Mouse hats. But it just, there was something striking about this guy at the head of the line with a Mickey Mouse hat. So they start boarding. And when uh, Gregory got on the plane, he saw the guy with the Mickey Mouse hat head all the way to the back of the plane. And in Southwest, if you've never flown Southwest, you board in groups and it's open seating. So you grab whatever seat you want. So the people who board first get all the good seats up front so they can get off really quick. This guy got one of the first spots getting on the plane and he heads to the very back, sits in the back row. Not only did he sit in the back row, he sat in the middle seat. When I fly Southwest, I'm hoping like anything that I can get a, a window seat. I like looking out the window. But this guy took the middle seat in the very back of the airplane. And Gregory noticed that and he just thought, that's, that's really strange that he would do that. So once they took off, once they got airborne and started flying, uh, Mickey Mouse hat guy got up from the back of the airplane, walked all the way up to the front, and he stood up in front talking to the stewardesses, the, the flight attendants, for a little while. And then after some laughing and joking around, he turns around and he starts handing out drinks and, uh, and peanuts with them. And when he got to Gregory, uh, the man came up and said, hi, my name is Herb Kelleher. Uh, thank you for flying my airlines. Can I get you something to drink? Herb Kelleher is a billionaire, was a billionaire. He's, he's passed away since. He was a billionaire. He was the CEO and founder of Southwest Airlines. 
And yet what he did was he got on the airplane and instead of expecting, you know, the best seat and, and to be pampered and take care of, he, he got up and he started working with the, uh, the people that he'd hired and thanking people for flying his airlines. It was an amazing thing. His, his approach to the airline industry busted all sorts of standards and rules, well, not rules, but, you know, customs and kinds of things. Um, he, he said, and I think the most memorable thing he said was, we put employees first, customers second. It's usually the other way around. Why would you put employees first and customers second? Because if you take care of your employees, they will take care of your customers. And so that was the, the way Southwest began was it started out with that kind of approach. Why? Because the head of the company was a servant leader. He wasn't afraid, in and get, afraid to get in and, and, and work with people. And, and do what they, he was asking them to do. So the magazine article ends, it says, Kelleher said that the Southwest spirit was, quote, the core of our success. That's the most difficult thing for a competitor to imitate. They can buy all the physical things. Things you can't buy are dedication, devotion, loyalty, the feeling that you're participating in a crusade. Humble leadership and putting people first is what creates and nurtures loyalty, advocacy, and brand love. Herb Kelleher was a leader who inspired both inside of his company and out. So I don't know if you remember in the early 2000s when Southwest was the thing, even with the cattle car seating, it was cheap and the people had a blast. One of the funniest things I ever heard was a, an announcement on, um, on the uh, PA when we landed. They said, hey, we, we have a special announcement. There is a, a person on board who just celebrated their 98th birthday. That's a tremendous milestone. Isn't that great? Let's give them a round of applause. Everybody claps. And he said, yeah. And so on the way out, just tell the pilot, thank you. Because they fostered that kind of an attitude with their crew. They wanted people to have fun. And so what we're seeing here is this servant leadership approach. Instead of I am me and you do as I say, but digging in and helping, those are the people that you would you would go to war with because you know they're right there with you. They're not calling in shots from uh, from on high. That's called servant leadership. And the, coin, the term was uh, coined in the 1970s. I think it was in 1970. And people kind of think that's when it originated. The idea of, of servant leadership is far more ancient than that. Jesus practiced it. But even before that, what we're going to see this morning is David practice it. And so where we're at in, in 1 Samuel, it's been three weeks. I was in Boron last week. The week before was Easter. And then the week before, we preached the first half of this chapter. So there's this big glaring, glaring gap between what we said then and now. But I'll try to summarize real quick. What happened was last week, we saw David be anointed as king. And David said nothing and did nothing. It wasn't about David. It was about God. God looks on the heart. Men look at the externals. We look at the external of a person, but God looks on the heart. And that's what that section was about. And so David is anointed to be king, and that's it. Story ends. This picks up in the second part. Commentators agree there's a giant disconnect between 13 and 14. It, it's like there's something has happened, and now we're heading in a different tra trajectory. And, and it really is. It is the pivotal part of the book of 1 Samuel. And so what you're going to see is I had uh, Rich start in the middle of uh, verse 13 so we could kind of get the context. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose and went to Ramah. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So you get a lot of movement in those two verses. There's a lot of things happening. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon David. And, and he comes upon David and stays on David. He was on David from that day forward. 
Um, what we had seen previous with Saul is the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he went out to battle. So the Spirit of the Lord kind of came and went. That was typical from the Old Testament was the Spirit would come upon somebody and then depart. And you see that in the book of Judges. The Spirit came upon Samson at his last moments and he was able to destroy the temple, uh, the uh, temple to Baal, that kind of thing. But the Spirit didn't come and rest on somebody. This is something new. The Spirit comes and rests on David. And then it says, Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Ramah was his home. We don't hear much about Samuel from the rest of this book. He's going to appear three times, two of them alive. One, he's going to appear dead. And the two times he's alive, he barely does anything. He's more background than he is anything else. It's when he's dead that he actually speaks. And when he speaks, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Lord and what's going to happen to Saul. So we're kind of done with Samuel at this point. So what is going on? What's happening here is the spirit has come upon David. God, remember in, in three weeks ago, I was almost in the last week, three weeks ago, God said, I'm going to search for a man that I'm going to appoint to be king. I will put him, I will put my king on the throne. So he's going to put that king on the throne. And he does. He anoints him and then sends his spirit upon him and he's gone. So what's going on with Samuel? Samuel is a transitory figure. He's coming at the end of the judges. He is the last and the final judge of Israel. So he's, he's uh, judging Israel. He's kind of bordering that gap between the judges and the kings. He's establishing the king. Now that God's king is on the throne, the time of the judges is over. And so he goes home. He's still a prophet. There's still a role for prophet. And, and he was a judge and he was a prophet and he was a priest. But his, his role in this is now handed off because... David has, has now become king. But we're not going to see David on the throne until the end of the book. So what's going on? Well, David has become the king, not just because Samuel poured oil on his head, but because the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And so this is that transition period between David and Saul, because verse 14, this, the beginning of the next big section says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is the only person in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, that says the Spirit of the Lord departed from. And that's significant. This is the transition. This is why David is king, is because the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. And then there's another part, another movement here that says a harmful spirit or an evil spirit tormented him. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, let, let's, let's take a look at this next section because that kind of begins to address that. Uh, verses 15 through 19, Saul's servant said, Behold, the harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Depending on your translations, it's going to be translated a couple of different ways. The term harmful is actually ra, which is evil. And so it's an evil spirit from the Lord is, is tormenting, but it's actually terrifying is probably more what's at root there. It's terrifying Saul. Wait a minute. <laughs> God sends an evil spirit? What is going on here? Well, the word, the Hebrew word for evil is raha, and it's a little complicated because it doesn't always mean moral evil, like Satan is morally evil, spiritually evil. Um, in Hebrew, the word can mean bad. Uh, it could be um, uh, like a disaster, disastrous, because in um, Isaiah 45, it says, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. It's actually evil. I create well-being and I create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
So what he's saying there is not that he creates evil. He's not the author of evil, but he can be the author of, author of disaster, of discomfort, of, um, of troubling things. And that's part of what I was praying is, you know, sometimes God can use that suffering, that, that difficulty that he creates, not to destroy us, but to hone us and to shape us. And so this evil spirit, this, this troubling spirit, this, this disastrous spirit has come upon Saul. Um, I don't know about you, but I tended to always think that this was a demon possession. And I read a comment from a fairly respected author that called it, referred to it as a demon possession. This is not demon possession. Why do I say that? Because it's an evil spirit comes upon, not into him. But also what we'll see in this section is he can be comforted. When the evil spirit is tormenting him, is terrifying him, David will come and play the, the harp. He'll play his harp and these soothing sounds will calm Saul and the evil spirit will depart. That's not how demon possession works. In, in the New Testament, there's a, a demon possessed man who hides in the tombs and they can't even put chains on him to slow him down. When it's a, a demon possession, the demon is doing what it wants and a harp is not gonna have any effect on it. So this isn't a possession. This is something that God is doing in Saul's life. Why is he doing that? I haven't a clue. I don't have any idea at this point. I struggled with that wrestling with why would he send an evil? Why not just leave his spirit? You know, his spirit takes off. Why not just, you know, let him be then? God has a purpose in it. I can't decide from this verse, but we're going to be with Saul for a while and this evil spirit's going to show up. So let's, as we go, pay attention to that and see if we can't see if there's some pattern or purpose or some reason that God does it. I don't know why, but the movement is the spirit has departed from Saul and an evil spirit shows up every once in a while and troubles him. So this is, a, this is not good. And so one of his servants says, behold, God is sending this, this uh, um, spirit to trouble or torment. I think the better one is terrify. Just scare the daylights out of him to terrify you. Let, your, let our Lord command your servants who, before, who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. A couple of things to notice there. Let your, our Lord command your servants who are before you. This is Saul has matured into the office of the king. Before, he was kind of just hanging out and leading him. It was more of a, a, a judge's kind of thing. But now they're referring to him as our Lord and you have servants eternally be, or forever before you. So this is him really kind of coming into that kingship role. But they say, let us, so command us and we'll go do this. And uh, so Saul says to, says to them, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. This is really a verse that shows we're at a reflection point. You won't remember because it's been three weeks, but at the beginning of chapter 16, God said, um, I have provided for myself a king. Saul now says, you provide for me a man. It, is, it really is this reflection. And be, the answer to both of those provides is a son of Jesse. And it's the son of Jesse who is out with the sheep at the time who has to go be fetched and brought back in. So this is really that mirror reflection. Now we're seeing David come in here. And so that's what's happening is he's going to go send to, to Jesse and say, um, uh, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. 
Anybody want that one for the king? I'm going to vote for him. The, the, the Lord is with him party is the one I'm voting for. So Saul doesn't see him as a threat. He doesn't know what Samuel did um, in anointing him king. He just realizes this sounds good. So uh, Saul sends to Jesse and says, send me your son, David, who is among the sheep. This is that utter reflection of what God has done. We're, we're starting over again with the new king. And so verse 20, so Jesse takes a donkey and he gives it bread and wine and a young goat and sends him uh, with David to his son to Saul. And so David comes to Saul and enters his service. Um, and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Um, that term, Saul loved him greatly. Don't let that give you much comfort. Because remember what happened previously? Chapter one, Samuel says, God says, go anoint uh, son of Jesse and uh, he'll be the king. And Saul's response, or Samuel's response is, if Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. So being greatly loved by Saul was not necessarily a sign of security or blessing or love, or, you know, love really. Um, but he is attracted to David. There's something appealing about David. And so that's what he does. He says, um, he says to him, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. And then verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from the, God, from the Lord came upon Saul, David took his lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and all was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Can you imagine coming to a man who's just tormented, who is just beside himself and saying, hey boss, let me play something for you and just sit and play a harp and watch him mellow right out. Just settle right down. What a blessing, what a beautiful thing. So what's going on here is, is, remember, we keep talking about this is prefiguring Jesus. This is leading us to Jesus. So what is uh, David's first role as the newly, freshly anointed king? Well, first he goes back to the sheep, but then he comes into service. So David, as the spirit-filled, the, the anointed king of Israel, his first duty is to serve. And this is where we begin to see who Jesus is in the middle of this. Jesus came to serve. In um, Mark 10 and also Matthew 20, 28, says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So David is already beginning to pre-imagine pre pre that for us, to picture the king as a servant. And then Philippians 2 is the most magnificent statement of that. It says, he was born in the form, or he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So Jesus comes not from tending the sheep of his father's little flock in Bethlehem. He comes from heaven, surrounded by myriads of angels in the form of God. And says, I'm not going to say that this, this position is something that I'm just going to hang on to. There's more glory to be had. And so he comes to earth as a ruling king. Nope, as a servant. It's just a beautiful picture of a tiny glimpse of what we get with David is amplified so much in Jesus. And not only did David show up as a servant, he came bringing in gifts from his father, didn't he? He brought bread and wine and a young goat. He brought food to the king. Well, that's what Jesus does. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. God gives gifts. And then Ephesians 4 explains how we get them. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led host 
a cap, or he led a host of captives, and he gives gifts to men. So here's our servant king arriving with gifts from his father and bestowing them on, on, the, on his people. This, this is that, that image of who Jesus is in the middle of all of this. So as we enter Jesus' kingdom, as we come into the king of Jesus, as we come into his service, as we come into his, his kingdom, what should we do? Should we expect to be served? There's context to those earlier passages that I read. So the Matthew 21, listen to it in, in the broader context. He says, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As Jesus did this, our master, what he's expecting you to do is now do the same thing. Do it also. The context for the Ephesians 2 verse, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others, having this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ. That's the beautiful thing. Our king comes to serve, and then he says, now come and join me and serve. And so this is how we're supposed to serve. We're supposed to take care of and give to each other. These gifts that he gives to men are not for us. They're for everybody. So 1 Peter 4, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So this is life in the kingdom. This is the life in the kingdom of the spirit-filled king who serves as he calls us to join him. And what he tells us to do is now serve, serve each other. And the great news is you won't lose by participating in his kingdom that way. Because if we're all on board, or most of us, let's say most of us are on board with this serving thing, guess what you get? You get served as well. You can't be the only one serving. It'll burn you out. But if we're in a kingdom like this, if everybody is like that, and you remember what I said with uh, the first part of this verse, we were talking about the spirit coming upon David because God saw his heart and Jesus knows the hearts of men. And so what he did is he came and he gave everybody the spirit. You're not having to do this by balling up your fists and going, I'm gonna try really hard to serve somebody. You've got the Holy Spirit conspiring with you to lead you in service, to help you to serve one another. And in this way, we're children of the King. We get more gifts as we give more. It's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't make sense. But this is what the servant leadership of Jesus looks like. He's not just giving you soda and peanuts. He's giving amazing gifts to men. And we can all delight and enjoy them in each other without worshiping or praising each other, but simply by going, that's so cool that Jesus gave you that gift. Thank you for sharing that with me. So this is the beginning of what the kingdom is gonna look like. Now it's gonna shape up differently as we go, but this, this inauguration of this kingdom, this is what the kingdom of Christ looks like. This is what it means to be in the church, in God's kingdom, amongst God's people, serving in the way that God serves. And he calls us to it, and he equips us, and he fits us. He gives gifts to men so that we can give gifts to each other. 
it's, it's not a losing proposition. This is the kingdom I want to be in. This is the king I want to serve. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the gifts that you've given to man, for the gifts that you've given to us, for coming and serving us. And Lord, as difficult as it is to see what's happening to Saul, you sent David to comfort him. A man who you had rejected, a man who's, who you took a spirit, the Holy Spirit away from, a man who you sent a troubling spirit upon, and, and then because you're kind and merciful, you send him David with a liar, and you comfort him. So Lord, as we engage in following our great King, Jesus, I pray that we'd have that same kind of attitude of, of seeing the suffering of other people, righteous, unrighteous, good, bad, but seeing the suffering and, and being the kind of person who would serve them and find a way to alleviate the pain. So Lord, thank you for this wonderful example in David. And Lord, we pray that you would make us more like Christ, conform us to his image as we've been predestined to be. In his name we pray, amen.